This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... My new game, Hellfolk. The not-so-puritanical Puritans. Irritainment and game design. And the Nazi meteor Buddha of Tibet. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. It's time once again for Among My Many Hats. And Among Robin's Many Hats is... The Drama System, the new uh, system for representing narrative flow as seen in your finer HBO dramas uh, and your finer Shakespearean dramas. And it powers the upcoming game Hillfolk, the first of many series pitches for The Drama System. And Robin, why don't you clear up all of that terminology for us right now? Okay, so the basic idea behind Drama System is, as it says on the tin, to do dramatic scenes uh, in a way that we have traditionally not done them in uh, role-playing. Historically, we have focused on one of the two main types of scenes that form the building block of all popular non-experimental narrative. And these scene categorizations you may be familiar with from Hamlet's Hit Points, which is my book, Breaking Down Narrative for Use in Role-Playing. And these are the two main sorts of scenes that you get in any narrative. There is the procedural scene, which is a scene of external conflict with uh, obstacles outside of yourself, sort of practical problems being overcome. And this is your classic bashing down a door or finding a door or climbing a wall or dealing with the guys on the other side of the door. The other sort of scene is the dramatic scene, the scene in which one person seeks an emotional reward from a, another character and they, I, the other character either uh, grants that petition or refuses it. So what I've done is taken a look uh, at the way dramatic scenes are structured in narrative and replicated that in a very, very simple, flexible rule system that, unlike a lot of story-focused games, unlike a lot of awesome story-focused games, doesn't try to control and direct your experience so much as create a skeleton, a framework, in which you can all together collectively make a narrative of personal interaction. So what you may remember from the way that emotional conflicts tend to work out in role-playing games without a structure to support them is that uh, the player A who wants something, the petitioner, will go to player B, the grantor, and say, well, I would like you to do this. And then player uh, B thinks, well, it's out of character for me to ever give in for any reason to something that I wouldn't normally want to do, so I'm just going to refuse. And then player A restates their position, player B restates their position, and on and on and on, and you hit a roadblock. Well, in drama, of course, if you watch uh, Sons of Anarchy or Boardwalk Empire or Shameless or any dramatic serialized show, or in fact, you know, we don't really have many self-contained drama shows, but, you know, movies work the same way, that a character will give in about half the time and dig in their heels about half the time. And the reason that they do this in drama is that it is more interesting to have 
the characters' relationships change over time and to change situationally. But that's also because drama is based on the way we behave in real life. And in real life, we give in to the people we love and care about or have some other fraught emotional tie with because we have that tie with them. And because we are not simple one-dimensional characters, uh, dramatic characters tend to be abstracted as being uh, sort of having two poles, what I call dramatic poles. So they'll be pulled in two different directions. So for example, Tony Soprano on The Sopranos is torn between being a family man with a small F and a family man with a capital F. And he goes back and forth between those two poles over the course of the series. So the way that that manifests in the game is that if you are trying to petition another character for something and you're not having success getting it, or the player wants to give in because there's a reward for doing so, but is having trouble justifying it, they can just look at the other side of their divided nature. So if you're coming to me and my divide is between war maker and peacemaker, if I'm torn in that way, and you're trying to convince me not to go on a raid, I may initially come at you with my war maker arguments, but if you target your arguments toward the peacemaker side of things, I have a reason to give in if I want to give in. And so there's a simple economy that arises over the different dramatic scenes where if I give in to someone else's petition, I get a drama token, which gives me a number of different powers in the narrative. Uh, and if I refuse, the petitioner gets that token. So they get a consolation prize for having been refused, or they get the, what they want out of the scene. So uh, if you can uh, forgive a sort of a generalization here, a lot of story games, and as you point out wisely, a lot of terrific story games, I'm thinking uh, Fiasco, uh, sort of preeminent among them, but a lot of the story games come at drama from the sort of the screenwriter model where you've got the three acts and the goal of the game is to make sure that you have a really good uh, you know, set off that, that starts the drama happening and then channels the action toward a climax. Whereas in this, uh, because it's uh, sort of more based on serialized drama than a single narrative, the goal is just to make sure that the characters are alive and recognizably human in each scene. So it's a scene by scene, and then the, you know, sort of the onus is on the, the GM and the players, just like it is in more traditional role-playing games, to actually shape the larger drama into a recognizable uh, story arc or uh, move toward a climax. Uh, that's exactly right. And in fact, that's why there is a GM still in drama system. And the GM's role is to kind of nudge the narrative toward having a s structure that's satisfying for everybody in the room, even if they're not thinking of things in terms specifically of their character's desires. So the GM is sort of the stand-in for the gestalt audience. And the GM plays a raft of recurring characters. So you can interact with other characters over time played by the GM, or the GM may try to sharpen certain conflicts or try to add tonal variety. But the GM is as constrained as any of the other players. He gets to call uh, no more scenes than any one single player. He is part of the drama token economy. He's part of also the economy that runs the procedural scenes in the rare cases where you need them. And so it's a really interesting experience to GM the game as well, because you have to start to be tactical with the th uh, elements that you introduce. You don't have that overarching power, and it becomes more of a challenge to try and, you know, you can't 
be a dictatorial storyteller in this system. You just don't have the power. So even if you wanted to, you can't impose anything. All you can do is sort of try and pull toward that structure where you would have a big satisfying climax at the end of a season. Uh, but we found that when we played that, that sort of arose spontaneously, that everybody kind of knew in the back of their heads that this is where it escalates. And it really created a fun, free-flowing dynamic and one that cuts out a lot of the typical faffing about that you get in a game of character interaction because it is structured to always keep moving. And so once a scene kind of tends to lose steam and it's become apparent whether the petition has either been uh, granted or refused, the GM sort of steps in to help pace it and then you move on to the next scene. And so you always have a, a flow that is like the flow of the way that scenes are intercut in an ensemble dramatic show. Cool. And obviously the uh, first instinct of any uh, gamer when presented with a fascinating new mechanism for interpersonal role-playing is to set it in uh, early Iron Age uh, Palestine. So tell us about Hillfolk. The idea behind this is to get everybody started with drama system on a in a setting that is fun and has some sort of geeky resonance. In this case, it will appeal, obviously, to history geeks, especially ancient history and archaeology geeks, but contains the elements that would otherwise tempt you to sort of make it like experiences that you're used to rather than coming to grips with the way that drama system changes things. So by setting it in what is uh, and how much it's like 10th century BC Palestine or not is totally up to you. You get to invent together the degree to which the setting diverges from history. Uh, so for example, almost everybody, every group decides to have a non-patriarchal social structure, which changes everything about that uh, culture that you might otherwise be basing it on. Yes. <laughs> it also creates the fact that you're all members of the same small tribe of raiders in a, a hard scrabble badlands means that you are physically constrained, as you often are in dramas, to dealing mostly with each other. So you are playing the five or six most important people in this clan who always continue to deal with each other. So if, uh, if I started out with something set in a giant spaceport, for example, it would not only tempt people to go out and have space adventures rather than focusing on the emotional interaction, but it would immediately tempt them not to interact with each other so much. And so... This was my attempt to meet the uh, requirements of baseline uh, gamer interest with a setting that would show off drama system to its best advantage. Now, right now, we're revving up to a crowdfunding effort through Kickstarter, which uh, Knockwood will be operational by the time this podcast drops. And what we'll be doing when, uh, if we reach our stretch goals is bringing in other series pitches, which will appear in the book, at the back of the book, which will give you all sorts of choices for other settings, including ones with geekier chrome on them, more SF and fantasy and other more outwardly genre-like things that you may find more fun or uh, at first or... Or more accessible to uh, More accessible players. to you. Yeah. Um, but I really still recommend that people start with uh, Hill Folk, and they may find that they want to keep playing Hill Folk for a while because the series does take on a life of its own, and you really become invested in the characters, much more so than in your... Even in, in a really great campaign based on a procedural... Uh, 
setting. I find that the characters that the, my groups created, uh, both for a drama system and for uh, sort of a carnival with the serial numbers filed off, much more memorable to me, and I care much more about them than I do about a lot of the cast of characters that have uh, come up over the years to play D&D or Trail of Cthulhu or Ezoterras or, or what have you. Cool. Well, uh, so we have uh, Drama System, we have Hill Folk, and we have series pitches all set forth with admirable lucidity. Uh, and indeed, you are uh, tapped should we exceed our initial goal to do a stretch goal. So uh, maybe you could give an example of what the other series pitches might be like by describing what you have in mind. Uh, the one that I have in mind is sort of a after effect or echo of all of the spy novels and spy shows that I watched and read while uh, working on Knights Black Agents. Uh, the notion of a bottle uh, environment where you are sort of forced to deal with people uh, uh, who are uh, in there with you, whether you like them or not, where there's a limited uh, scope for procedural activity, all of that uh, said to me, an American embassy somewhere behind the Iron Curtain. So my notion is something on the order of Moscow Station, where you are uh, the staff uh, in the American embassy in the CIA wing of it during the Cold War at some point, and uh, specifically which era of the Cold War may be left up to the GM, or I may sort of offer some uh, some tempting opportunities. But the notion that you are sort of torn between your desire for peace and your desire to protect your country against uh, deadly enemies, uh, I think that that's the standard uh, tension that hits all uh, you know American representatives overseas, and so I think that that's, you know, that begins with as a good series dramatic poll, and then individual characters can have all kinds of individual motivations, just like, you know, you would get in either an actual American embassy or in an actual uh, dramatic uh, show. And I think it plays nicely with the sort of torn from the pages of recognizable history books stuff that Showtime and Cinemax and Stars and HBO have all been doing with greater or lesser success for the last few years. I've been really excited by the list of different concepts for the series pitches, which obviously won't be written unless we reach various funding levels. But I'm really hoping that they come to fruition because a lot of times I'm seeing these ideas of going, man, I'd watch that show. So, for example, uh, uh, our pal Chris Premis has proposed to do a series pitch set during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and it's like, man, I would watch that if that was on HBO. I, I, I had a over-under on Chris Premis's pitch, so I'm, I'm interested to find that it's that instead of the uh, punk scene of New York in the 1980s, which also would be a pretty terrific show, I think, from I mean, the soundtrack alone. That would be. Uh, well, I, I guess that would be a low-hanging uh, fruit for Chris. He, went, uh, he figured he, this was his only chance to be uh, paid to write a uh, gaming material about the Spanish Civil War. That That is such a narrow-minded way of thinking. I mean, now that we know that he wants to write gaming material about the Spanish Civil War, I think that that makes a fine Trail of Cthulhu uh, book if Chris is uh, interested. Well, uh, that's an example of being uh, dragged in by the tentacles, as it were, and I guess signals the end of Among My Many Hats. So, everybody, if the Kickstarter is going, please type in Hill Folk and seek your uh, desired level of uh, pledging. We've got all sorts of goodies for you, and you can take part in a uh, battle uh, with your other backers between the Lion and the Wolf Clan, so check that out. So now we come to another installment of that 
perennial feature, asked Ken and Robin. And this is a follow-up question from James McLaughlin and from Brian, who ask uh, Ken particularly uh, to follow up on his statement to tell us more about how Puritans get a bad rap. Now, often we find that things get adjectives associated with them that actually don't relate to the original thing. Uh, Denver sandwiches are not from Denver. Nanaimo bars are not from Nanaimo. Philistines, as far as we know, did not dislike avant-garde art. And uh, apparently, uh, Puritans were not puritanical. So perhaps you might want to start by tell us how they were unpuritanical, and um, we'll go on from there. Well, I mean, it, a lot of it depends on uh, what you mean by puritanical, as is natural. But the standard rap on the Puritans, that they were no fun having uh, sexless uh, weirdos, is, you know, simply refutable by the fact that we're still here. Uh, if the Puritans hadn't liked sex, they wouldn't have uh, increased their population, uh, been fruitful and multiplied, and filled the land as God commanded them. Well, there's lots of sex-hating cultures who nonetheless reproduce. Yes, but uh, it, most of the sex-hating cultures uh, who actually hate sex turn out to not so much reproduce, or uh, at the very least uh, uh, lose out in the great mimetic uh, competition with their neighbors. Uh, the obvious examples would be, you know, the Shakers, uh, in Pennsylvania, who were a genuinely sex-hating culture, or uh, the, the Cathars in southern France, who, it turned out, when you live in the most romantic spot in the world, believing that sex is uh, sent by the devil to make everyone's lives a misery, turns out to be less uh, popular even than Roman Catholicism. So, go figure. But the Puritans, uh, what, they, what you have to keep in mind about the Puritans is that they, there's two fundamental factions uh, or, or sort of uh, impulses to their mind. One is they are literally living at the knife's edge of survival in a howling wilderness. Uh, something like a third of the of the Puritans died that first winter uh, when they moved to uh, Plymouth Colony. Uh, they every single action taken by their society had to benefit the group's survival. They they were very much on the knife edge of of living or dying by their own efforts and by the ability of everyone in the colony to pull together. So there is a much stronger communitarian tradition amongst the Puritans than we as uh, sort of late uh, 20th, early 21st century Americans really can, can get behind. And very much contrary to the American myth of the rugged individual, these were uh, rugged communalists. Exactly, yes. Uh, the, the, the American mythology comes from at least uh, four different uh, strains of uh, British uh, thought uh, or British uh, folk uh, behavior and folk belief. The Puritans are only one, although one of the strongest, and they are, as you say, rugged communalists. And the other thing that uh, you have to keep in mind about the Puritans is that they were doing uh, this, uh, th this sort of uh, desperate survival uh, in order to create a godly society that people would be able to look at and uh, reform their own uh, fallen ways. The notion by John Winthrop and other uh, influential Puritan fathers was not that they would go off into the wilderness and let the rest of the world go hang. They're not anchorites. Uh, what they are is uh, building the city on a hill, as John Winthrop put it, that would send an example of godly behavior to the rest of the world and reform the English church first and then eventually uh, other churches such that everyone would be living according to God's express commandments. Now, obviously, that sort of uh, thing turns out to be harder in practice than it does in theory, but that is the part of Puritanism that I think is sort of still contained in the notion H.L. Mencken's great comment that a Puritan is someone 
who is uh, darkly suspects that someone somewhere is having a good time, is exactly half uh, right in that the someone else is always on the Puritan mind, and that you are your job is to sort of be an example for them, and obviously that uh, reinforces the notion of a communal society in which if one person is sleeping around with someone else's wife, committing adultery, they are, you know, at the very least, they're destroying two families by doing so, and two families is a not insignificant proportion of your colony's economic output, your colony's ability to survive the next winter. And the social destruction that it causes, people take sides and argue back and forth in church, is even worse. So that is why, up until 1632, the Puritans, you know, chopped off your head for adultery. After 1632, they, you know, the sort of the softer, more reforming side of Puritans came in, and you just had to spend time in the stocks and um, get the scarlet letter sewn on your clothes. So it was not a sex crime, as we would understand it today, or a crime of passion, but a a crime against community unity and social control. Right, yeah, it's, it's a crime against society to do that kind of thing, and obviously against God's express commandment. But the Puritans would also put, you know, unmarried women and men together who were obviously going to uh, get married, you know, once you could have an, a nice banquet, and they'd start them sleeping in the same bed. And if anyone believes that the Puritans thought that the board between them would prevent anything from happening, they have never lived in a small town, much less they have never met young people. Uh, the, the Puritans were not idiots. So, so they took the time-honored principle of church camp uh, one step further and uh, exactly. making things happen. Well, basically, Puritan New England was church camp for about uh, 40 years before they finally were able to, uh, to, to get enough uh, communication with the outside world and enough different uh, sort of dissenting uh, Puritans who move out and found Rhode Island and things like that, that you have sort of your option of church camps to go to. So if their relationship to uh, pleasure and sexuality is not what we think of when we uh, think of this Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter and when we throw around the word puritanical to refer to people who are extremely uncomfortable about sexual expression, how did that label then retroactively get assigned to them? In other words, if the Puritans weren't puritanical, why is America? The uh, Puritans uh, were not puritanical because pretty much no one was puritanical uh, back in that time. You'd get the occasional eccentric. But the Puritans have been ever since, I mean, literally since the first batch of Puritans used them as a club to beat up the next batch of Puritans. They have been the example that you point back to and say and and accuse your uh your descendants of of trying to uh, reinstate the John Winthrop uh, while an admirable fellow in many ways was in every important sense something of a religious dictator now he was a religious dictator who stepped down when called on it but he still was a very hard-assed uh bad news kind of guy and behaving like that has been un-american literally since the first puritans deposed John Winthrop and so every intellectual and uh, cultural movement in America has used the Puritans as the symbol of the thing that they were rebelling against. And specifically what you got in the late 19th century was a bunch of writers, both in England and in America, using the Puritans or their equivalent in Britain as the uh, emblem for Victorian society, which was, in fact, uh, very nervous and uh, questioning about sex because they had a huge amount of social stratification tied into the notion that the, uh, the sort of the, the pseudo-Darwinian 
uh, no, or actually not pseudo, the actually Darwinian notion that the lower orders were breeding much faster than the upper orders and that that could only lead to social chaos and that you really needed to do something, anything, to discourage the lower orders from uh, getting it on so much. And that was one of those Darwinian beliefs that Darwin himself did not necessarily have a huge amount to do with. Yeah, but it was, you know, it's not like Darwin, you know, ran away from it either. D Darwinian, but not derived from Darwin. <laughs> well, um, that's, I think, a, a different uh, episode. Yes, it's all about disciples. But obviously the Puritans didn't have, I mean, they didn't have a social class because they all came from the same social class. So they don't have this horror of large families. Large families were, were God's blessing. Uh, specifically because, as I say, you know, you need farmhands. But the uh, sort of the Victorian notion of unregenerate uh, sexuality comes from a society where you have this Darwinian pr imagined pressure uh, from the lower classes. The lower classes, by the way, have all become Methodist in the interim and are therefore engaging in a kind of religion that terrifies Anglicans just like the Puritans did. Uh, so the, the lower classes, to an extent, are more Puritan than the upper classes in Britain at this point, or the middle classes, rather. Well, and that's often the case, because you're, you are going to bear more of the brunt of uh, social decay caused by adultery or families that you can't support when you are struggling to get by than when you are better off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the notion that the, uh, the aristocracy is uh, destroying the morals of the country is, you know, certainly, as you point out, pragmatically true, and uh, it has been a, a, a fruitful meme in its own right since, at the very least, the Romans, and probably before that, uh, but I don't, you know, know enough Babylonian social commentary to know one way or the other. But the, uh, the late 19th century would uh, caricature the Victorian middle-class uh, anti-sex uh, sentiment, which is also driven by the huge huge epidemics of syphilis that are pouring through British society at this time. So sex outside the, the home really could, you know, not just screw up the house, but also kill everyone with a horrific brain disease. Uh, so the, the, these, um, uh, the, this uh, anti-sexual uh, expression attitude is, is driven, you know, not just by sort of public morality, but also public health concerns. But the, uh, the, the, the sort of the more upper-class writers are uh, caricaturing this uh, middle-class uh, morality, and they, uh, the stick they reach back to, to hit them with are the Puritans. Now, Nathaniel Hawthorne, when he's writing The Scarlet Letter, he's not criticizing the Puritans for opposing Hester Prynne for having sex. He's uh, speaking from a, a transcendental New England in which the individual experience is, I think, for the first time in New England, if not for the first time in America, being elevated above the communal experience. And even now, the descendants of those Puritans, the New England uh, uh, society, um, it, it, it's been reborn in that strain of America that believes that everyone is drinking too much soda and getting too fat and uh, saying mean things about uh, their neighbors and being too prone to uh, watch terrible television and every, every sort of nanny state moralizing attitude in America. And that is the genuine puritanical attitude that if we don't behave, uh, other people will look at us and not think that we come from God. Uh, and now in a, in a society in which God is no longer the, uh, the, the prime motivator, they'll just think that we're not, you know, good people defined in whatever post-Kantian way uh, the, the modern Puritans define it. So the Puritans of yore were puritanical, but the degree to which sexuality was a component of that was just a scintilla. Uh, now, since then, if you look at American culture compared to other Western nations, there is still a 
uh, streak of, shall we say, sexual hysteria that is uh, more vibrant in uh, the beloved USA. How did that come about, would you say? I, I'm not exactly sure, because I'm not exactly sure when that sort of uh, streak began. I mean, it could just be that America has always been um, sort of a middle-class place, and as you mentioned, the middle class are the people who are traditionally the most worried about that kind of uh, activity getting out in the street and scaring the horses. It could be because America has uh, long been a, a place of people with uh, excitable uh, public attitudes to religion to sort of show up and share their opinions with everyone and find a fertile uh, ground for that kind of uh, of discourse. So the generalized notion that adultery and fornication, while uh, in addition to their various social ills, are also disapproved of by God, is probably a great deal stronger than in countries, you know, the, the rest of the West is, for example, considerably less church-going than America, too. So it might just be a simple uh, matter of, of, of that equation being. I'm not sure, you know, for example, how much pornography was uh, being, you know, openly celebrated in Europe back when its uh, state churches actually had any political power. Uh, well, now that we're uh, talking about all sorts of licentious matters, we better end this segment before it turns into some sort of unwholesome podcast in which people drink soda pop and think impure thoughts. and uh, Celebrate Christmas. Yes, indeed, yes. And uh, move on to another segment. So uh, thanks, Ken, for answering this week's Ken and Robin question. And we have a bunch more in the pipeline, and we'll be answering them as we go along. to look around our landscape of huts and enter the gaming hut where from our Olympian crag which to mix our hut metaphor rather unforgivably we gaze down at things in gaming that perplex others and interest us or uh, the other way around so Robin what furnishing in the gaming hut has caught your gimlet eye so uh, we've been asked by uh, someone who may become identifiable to you by the question to talk about RPG design elements that uh, initially irritate when they hit the uh, world of gaming and uh, are misunderstood at first, but then become indispensable to the point where, in hindsight, people claim to have been doing them all along. Can you guess uh, the questioner and the hidden agenda behind his question? I, uh, I believe that I can, but for our, uh, for our other listeners, perhaps we should provide the additional clue that he has a lustrous mane of silver <laughs> hair and a... Uh, demeanor that would be conversant with the finest of uh, people selling the Puritans tickets to go to America. So this is our, our beloved pal and and our, and sponsor as well, Simon Rogers of Pelgrane Press. And what he's obviously talking about here is the way that the investigative uh, rules of gumshoe, initially when people looked at them, they were sort of uh, confused and dismayed, and then there was sort of a another level of reaction where people claimed that they didn't need those rules because they'd secretly been using them all along, even though they'd never appeared in any published book. And then uh, now we're starting to see not only sort of wide acceptance of the logic of this, but we're starting to see it crop up in all sorts of other books because uh, the basic insight, which is that it's 
almost never interesting to fail to get information, that getting information gives you more options and more choices and moves the story along. It's uh, pacing forward has kind of caught on and people find other ways to do it other than the gumshoe way of just if you look in the right place with the right ability, you do not need to roll your information ability. You just get the bit of information and then maybe on top of that you can spend a few points to get the information in an especially cool way or to get other benefits associated with that information or that way of getting information. Now, I'm not old enough to remember uh, whether or not there was, and, uh, without the internet, how would I have known if there was uh, sort of general shock and dismay at the notion of uh, mental hit points uh, when, Sanity, uh, when Sandy Peterson introduced them as the Call of Cthulhu Sanity Death Spiral in 1981. But I am, I'm morally certain that someone somewhere uh, was uh, outraged that such a thing would happen to uh, make them not be able to play their character uh, as they would realistically behave when meeting a Cthulhu monster for the first time, because we see echoes of that same sort of uh, response to all social engineering and social interaction mechanics uh, ever since. I think the real wave of harumphing on that one started uh, not with sanity, which seems like hit points, and therefore I think was easier to assimilate, because it didn't actually have to change the way that you behaved until basically your character was dead. So for a lot of people that, uh, you know, some people loved the license of being able to play the slow spiral into insanity, and others, I think, felt less impeded by it. But it was another Chaosium game, Pendragon, with its set of opposed traits that you had to put values on and constantly roll to see whether you could behave in a certain way that really touched off that conflagration as to what extent social mechanics should be able to constrain your choices and actions. Now, certainly, obviously, the Pendragon Passion System is one of the glorious uh, untaken paths in gaming. Uh, would you say that things like the humanity mechanic in uh, Vampire and the rest of the sort of uh, attempts to enforce uh, in-game emotional uh, effect from a werewolf rage to um, magical... Uh, obedience to various rotes and laws. Do you think that's the sort of uh, post-gumshoe uh, attitude, or do you think that's a case of designers uh, seeing the sort of the genius of Pendragon and turning it to their own uh, ends? I, w to which I mean, do you think that it's the sort of, oh, we were doing passion system all along, or do you think it's a deliberate attempt by designers to reintroduce the passion system maybe under a, a more palatable uh, uh, label. I think what made, makes it more palatable in those other instances is that they collapse the number of oppositions that you have to keep track of to one thing that really flavors whatever setting you're trying to create. So rage in Werewolf being the one thing that you have to worry about and the thing that tells you everything you need to know about being a werewolf seems more like something that people buy into when they decide to play werewolves. Whereas the idea of having to be constrained by many different virtues in an archaic moral system as you have to be in order to be a proper knight in Pendragon, I think people find it harder to wrap their heads around that, that they have more difficulty implementing that and feel more constrained. Because very often the uh, next level of iterations of that gave people things that they really wanted to be invested in as, you know, 
how vampire are you going to choose to be? How werewolfy are you going to choose to be? And uh, because those are occurring basically in situations where you have enormous power over your social circumstances because you are a frickin' vampire in the modern world or a frickin' werewolf, you have a lot of power and you don't feel that the the system, I think, is is pushing on you quite so much. But certainly, it was the introduction of that idea in Pendragon that would have made that acceptable at all and has and now I think people uh, have bought into that second wave of logic to the point where they feel uh, disappointed uh, by systems that don't sort of help you buy into whatever the premise is and frustrated when as inevitably happens if people just sort of rationally cost benefit out what their characters would do in any situation where their characters are put in danger the rational response is to not do anything interesting ever. And so people, I think, see the damage caused by not directing you to be the kind of character who is in the kind of story that presumably you've agreed to be in. Yeah, and I think that uh, there is a sort of a twist on it that comes uh, not necessarily from the uh, the, the constraining mechanics of, of something like Pendragon, but the bribery mechanics of something like Fate, where in order to uh, play your character, you agree to take on a certain number of ticks or twitches or characteristics or attitudes, and that every time you do them, uh, you get a, a a little bonus to the die roll, and the GM can make you do them in times that it wouldn't necessarily be uh, be advantageous to you. So if you have the, the the aspect in Fate, you know, Daredevil, the GM can make you take a stupid risk and then bribe you with a with a Fate point uh, in order to do it. And I think that's sort of the mutant offspring of something like the passions mechanic from Pendragon and something like the disadvantage mechanic from GURPS or Hero. Right, because the, the trick in those early build point systems was that people who knew what they were doing could load their characters down with negative traits that allowed them to successfully annoy everybody else at the table and have fun doing it. And so, uh, really, they got extra points for uh, projecting their disadvantages outward onto other people, or, or often they really did. And so we've seen refinements of that idea that kind of curb that and give uh, more control to uh, the DM or to the mechanics in a DM-less system to ensure that the things that you take as disadvantages are really disadvantages to you as opposed to a means of seizing the power over other players. Or other, uh, in, in Fate specifically, things that make the game more interesting as opposed to things that make the game less interesting. Or more genre-compliant rather than less genre-compliant. Right. Because I I think, you know, uh, certainly in the Bulldogs game I played at uh, Dex, uh, Dexcon, there <laughs> there was no shortage of annoy the other players with your uh, social behavior, but it was much more along the lines of, you know, Spock and McCoy getting up each other's nose uh, well, you know, it was dirtier than that, but it was basically Spock and McCoy getting up each other's nose on the Enterprise. Right. It's not pooching the mission or it's not having a veto point. Uh, another, I mean, really, the earliest mechanic that governed people's behavior at the table was, of course, in D&D, where you had the paladin and the thief who were uh, designed in different ways to exemplify role-playing by... Uh, behaving in a way that undermined the rest of the group so that the thief, of course, uh, you know, any group of young Neo players, as soon as they realize that one of them is the thief, the thief figures out partway through that it's easier to rob the other members of the party than it is to, you know, 
eke a few coins out of the giant centipedes and dire rats that you're encountering at first level. And the paladin is not only set up to sort of be in conflict with the thief, but in general to have a a veto over everybody else's plans and behaviors. And so you got the syndrome where everybody had to go to the paladin to beg them to do the typically skeevy PC sorts of things, and uh, or they had to connive to do stuff behind his back. So that got people role-playing, but it also created a lot of roadblocks to forward momentum because there are certain inevitable things that happen when either the thief backstabs somebody in the party and takes their loot, well, then there's a fight between the party and then you have to go and roll up new characters, or there's the sort of plot roadblock you run into when you hatch your plan and then the paladin gets to shoot holes in it because it's not sufficiently moral enough for him. Yeah, the uh, and I think that that's going to be a problem anytime you have a collaborative art form or collaborative activity like, like role-playing is. You know, in, in jazz, I'm sure that they have problems when the guy with the drum thinks he's better at playing the drums than he actually is, or the guy with the cornet always wants to break in, or whatever it is. But in um, but in role-playing, we, we, we see these same pathologies occur, uh, as would occur any time adolescent uh, uh, people, mostly male, get together and do things. And I, I guess sort of it's incumbent on us as designers to sort of, at the very least, try and steer away from the the shell hole in the path rather than drive the truck right into it uh, at the at, at top speed and just hope we'll be able to come out the other side. Uh, yeah, so I think if you look at the history of uh, gaming, I'm not sure there's a huge history of things that were initially rejected and then accepted and then became conventional wisdom and then retroactively written into the uh, history of what people were doing, but there's certainly a long history of uh, brilliant ideas that uh, came along, changed the way that we role-played, and then were refined and shaped by uh, other waves of designers afterwards. Although the this-is-how-we-always-did-it attitude is interestingly present in the old-school Renaissance people, where they are not just playing zero-edition D&D uh, or various clones of it in with modern gamers. A lot of them, uh, people like James Malashevsky on Grognardia and other people, are, you know, talking to people who actually were part of that first generation of D&D and trying to sort of anthropologically extract what was gaming like back in the day when it was just the, 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 the white box or just the, the, the Moldvay set. And then to what extent you want to reenact that like a Civil War reenactor, I guess, is, is a whole different question. But the question of we've always played this way is very interestingly, I think... Um, it's complicated in a fun and interesting fashion by this attempt to actually sort of go back and play the way that we always used to play. Yes, because there's nothing that's more futuristic than a revival movement. Exactly. Uh, and on that note, I guess uh, we can safely exit the gaming hut, uh, use our gumshoe investigative abilities to perhaps find a sandwich, and our pendragon abilities to morally consume it. Now we reach our second installment of the history-bending segment, and as you might recall from previously when we associated UFO aliens Aleister Crowley and Charles Lindbergh, uh, this is a exercise in riffing on historical fact, uh, weird 
combinations of uh, forces that you don't necessarily expect to see together with an attempt to extract from them their uh, fictional or gaming juices. And in this case, uh, just this last week, we heard that a uh, Buddhist statue brought to Germany from Tibet by a Nazi-backed expedition was determined as being extraterrestrial. And of course, that means it was carved from a meteor. So I thought, Ken, we could kick this off by uh, getting the uh, basics on the uh, famous uh, Nazi expedition to Tibet in order to then uh, build additional weirdness onto it, should said weirdness be required. Yeah, the uh, when you get a headline like, Buddhist uh, god taken from Tibet by Nazis turns out to be from space, it turns out that everyone I know uh, sends me that link in Facebook or email or uh, at Kenneth Heights me on Twitter to, to make sure I've seen it. I, I have I have uh, seen more news about that than I think I've seen about uh, the election in the last uh, two weeks or so, uh, which, you know, quite frankly, is all of the best, I guess. Priorities, priorities. Exactly. So the Nazi expedition to Tibet was part of the wonderful uh, uh, generosity of Heinrich Himmler in making future role-playing games more wildly exciting and fun uh, when he would pay, not particularly well, uh, scholars in uh, Nazi Germany to go off and find evidence of primordial Aryan uh, cultures uh, scattered throughout the world that had been destroyed in the previous catastrophe. And one such Aryan culture, by uh, ineluctable uh, dint of the fact that they had swastikas in their art, was the uh, Buddhists of northern India and specifically of the mystical and inaccessible land of Tibet, which had sort of interested the Western mind ever since they heard that there was a land that Westerners weren't allowed to go to, and which uh, the Nazis, uh, just like everyone else, were fascinated with. And when you're Heinrich Himmler, you can pay Ernst Schaefer, a biologist and ornithologist, to climb up uh, the mountains of Tibet and meet the Panchen Lama and uh, give him a copy of Mein Kampf and find out uh, how many Aryan supermen there are in Tibet after all. So it's we have the German power to cloud men's minds via propaganda. How about you guys? What have you come up with? Exactly. And so they w went up to Tibet to find out all of the mystical secrets of the Nazi supermen. And uh, Ernst Schaefer, being a good Nazi and member of the SS, brought along a guy to measure all of their skulls so that we could tell exactly how Aryan the Tibetans were. And... Uh, they gathered a bunch of natural specimens, since that was what Ernst Schaefer was actually interested in, and they collected uh, entire uh, copies of the Tibetan Buddhist uh, scripture, the Kong Shur, and they met an awful lot of people in Tibet who were just as mad at uh, the Chinese and the Germ and the British as the Nazis were, and so they, they were able to fall on each other's necks and uh, ensure each other of their good fellowship. And, of course, the Panchen Lama is no uh, different from anyone else, a bunch of strangers with um, uh, awesome equipment show up and think that you're a superman. You're inclined, I think, to play up to that. So the, the, the Ernst Schaefer and his team were treated relatively well by the, by the llamas, and the whole thing was a huge success, and uh, much uh, was made of it in uh, the German propaganda press at the time. So it's interesting now to conceive of the uh, most evil racist movement, perhaps in the uh, history of the modern world, to have this big soft spot for Asian culture. And so in what direction did that go? Was it the, did they cook up their swastikas and then find them in Asian culture, or did they derive them uh, from Asian culture to begin with? Well, the swastika is, uh, to the extent that anyone knows for sure, 
it, it's sort of a natural thing. I mean, you, you take a, a, a cross and you bend the arms and you have a swastika, and there are swastikas that can be found in art that has nothing to do with the Indo-Europeans, such as, say, the Navajos, uh, whose swastikas were the proud badge of the 45th Infantry Division of the United States Army until it was borne in on the higher-ups of the 45th Infantry Division that they would very possibly be driving that army into the heart of Nazi Germany, and it might be incumbent on them to change their... Uh, there was some brand confusion, shall we say. There was brand confusion, although uh, our swastika was both gold and red and not uh, black and white, and also was the swastika on the winning side, so that will help you sort it out. They did ruin swastikas for everyone. It did. It did kind of wreck it. Uh, but the swastika is a very old uh, symbol that was used probably uh, to the extent we can know anything about it, by people who were very impressed by the sun and by the wheeling of the stars around the northern uh, uh, celestial pole, uh, the swastika sort of looking like both in a way, and has therefore shown up in the art and artifacts and religion of cultures that grow up where there's lots of uh, clear observation of the northern sky, which in generally is Siberia, uh, Tibet, uh, Scandinavia, uh, places like that. And so the swastika turns up in old Scandinavian art and in some, although not a lot, of old uh, Germanic uh, uh, symbology, generally as an emblem of the sun or as an emblem of the north sky. And the uh, Nazis picked up on it because anything that was used by proper uh, Aryans before the coming of Christianity must be the fundamental Aryan soul symbol. And then when you have the great good luck to stumble on it in Tibet, because obviously... Tibetan Buddhism is borrowing a lot of its symbology from India, and India was uh, the home of the original Aryans, except no substitutes. The uh, swastika shows up in a great deal of Buddhist art as well. And you get an awful lot of people saying that the, the Nazis turned the swastika backwards, and that the right-handed swastika is the good swastika, and the left-handed swastika is the evil swastika, and that's just nonsense. The swastika has gone both ways in pretty much every culture that's ever had a swastika. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, exactly. And um, uh, so the, uh, the the Buddhists now generally have the, the uh, other swastika, the one that was not the Nazi direction, just as a matter of attempted brand clarification. But uh, certainly before 1933, swastikas pretty much went whichever direction they felt like going. So I seem to have veered us off the original topic by diving into swastikology there. So uh, we have this... Iron Man, this uh, 24-centimeter-high sculpture that may be the god Ravana, and was likely created from a piece of the Chinga meteorite, uh, which was strewn in all sorts of pieces across the uh, plains of Russia and Mongolia between 10 and 20,000 years ago. So uh, what gamery or fictional valence can we extract from the combination of uh, uh, Skyrock statues and the Nazi expedition? Well, I, I, again, this is one of those things that sort of writes itself. I mean, if you can't do something with a Buddhist idol carved from a meteorite, taken by Nazis to Germany, and then uh, accidentally uh, lost for however many years, or I guess it went into private hands, as they so delicately say in the article, <laughs> um, you know, then you are, then you are perhaps need to go back down into the dungeon and start fighting those dire rats and giant centipedes again. Uh, the you have all manner of possibilities, obviously, with a with a meteorite uh, uh, with a human figure on it. Uh, the classic one I would immediately go with would be the the notion of the Betil, the god who lives in the rock from heaven. And this uh, comes to us from the Greeks, but lots of other cultures have had the notion of a meteorite bringing literally the god down from heaven. So if the Nazis have found 
uh, uh, good old um, uh, Vajrana and carried him off from Tibet to Germany, then maybe it's his uh, fell influence that makes uh, Hitler pull the trigger early and start World War II two or three years before the German rearmament plan finishes up. Or maybe he's uh, bringing some sort of uh, space spores with him. He, there's no actual uh, uh, god in the rock. It's just uh, an Andromeda strain type thing. And it was uh, when it was you know, kept uh, intact by Buddhist magic, there was no uh, danger specifically of, of trouble setting out. But once it's brought away by you know, stupid Europeans who don't know uh, proper Buddhist magic, uh, all hell breaks loose, literally. I think the notion that it's, they say that it was probably carved sometime in the 8th century B, uh, AD, uh, it interestingly correlates with the period in which Tibet sort of went crazy and invaded all of its neighbors and uh, got its own uh, epic poem of a king who goes around and kills everyone who looks at him sideways. And that king, for those who are interested, is named Jazar of Ling. And that is Ling as in Lang. Yes, indeed it is. So I think that there is all manner of possibilities to be drawn in on that angle. So you can, you can Andromeda strain it, you can uh, evil god it, you can do both or neither or all of the same. You have your choice as to whether the uh, meteor arrived as a meteor or whether, in fact, the uh, statue itself arrived from space and was not carved at all because, of course, meteors, though numinous, are not the best carving medium. It's very difficult to carve a statue of a uh, god 24 centimeters high or not from a meteor, so it might have arrived as that and, of course, immediately announced its numinosity. Yeah, it might be that the god obviously comes from the meteor and that once they, they find this uh, statue in the field, that's where, you know, the whole uh, the whole notion of, I mean, the little guy's got a halo and he's holding a, a mysterious orb, and Lord knows you can find plenty of halos and mysterious orbs in, in various religious uh, iconography. The, uh, the, the the article that I read said that it might be a lemon or it might be a bag of money. I look at it and I see a hand grenade myself, but uh, I think that that's another possibility is that he's holding maybe the alchemical egg or an Athenor. Uh, or it's the locus of power that he uses to subvert the various societies that he's brought into. And as, as we discuss that period where it was in undefined other hands, of course, that can give you your classic adventure where a fell artifact is passing from person to person, and you can go back in history and find out all of the terrible things that it did. It may, uh, to create a more manageable storyline, not only subvert nations, but subvert families. Uh, so if this orb is the uh, locus of the power that it uses to uh, destroy whatever it comes into contact with, or perhaps it's a uh, a force of just uh, justice, but cruel, destructive justice that's too difficult to get close to, that if you are too close to this, that uh, it will seek out whatever flaws that you have and use them to destroy you. And that, of course, was a good thing in launching World War II before they were quite ready to do so, but a bad thing if it's you, the investigator, who's got to ferry this dangerous object from its temporary perch at uh, Stuttgart University to the warehouse where it will be housed. Uh, or just there's the question of you could have a uh, a drama series even about the group of people who have to guard this artifact knowing that it has this destructive power. You have to go off uh, off the grid as far as you can. You can't just leave it there because someone might come along and steal it. It has that temptation to bring people toward it. So you have a team of people who've been selected for their uh, 
rigid determination to remain free of outside influence. Their job is to be the sentinels to protect this artifact, and we can then witness their slow deterioration as the artifact works its power on them and it tries to escape and get into another culture that it can wreak vengeance upon. Yeah, we can, uh, for example, uh, you know, cast it back, do it as a sort of a generational story where the unknown hands that had it between the uh, fall of the Ananerba in 1945 and uh, its resurfacing in Stuttgart University, maybe it's some sort of, you know, a uh, uh, bunch of uh, of people with uh, with connections on both sides of what became the Berlin Wall. So the 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 the, the drama between the the factions is: do we bring uh, the Vajrana into the east to sort of uh, provide the the blessings of um uh, of, of good luck and stellar awesomeness uh, to our brothers in the socialist revolutionary world, or do we keep him in the west to uh, contain godless communism with his magic Buddha power? And meanwhile, of course, uh, Vajrana has his own um, uh, unknown, unknow- perhaps even unknowable agenda. And slowly over the generations, we piece together what uh, the little iron god has actually been trying to get accomplished ever since he was taken uh, out of his uh, Buddhist protective circle by Ernst Schaefer. And we might determine that because this is a part of a larger meteor, uh, we may find that perhaps there's another statue out there still to be found and that the only way to reduce the malign influence of this object now that it's been taken out of the protective circle. And the protective circle, of course, is very difficult to rebuild now that Tibet is no longer in the hands of the uh, Dalai Lama. Uh, Second option would be to find the other statue somewhere and reunite it with this one and create a polarization that neutralizes its effect. So that would give you a, a quest adventure that you could set at any period from uh, after the war to the present day. And of course, if the statue was uh, fell in the Chinga meteor field, it fell in Siberia or Mongolia, which means it was deep in the vaults of the uh, mystical order uh, subsumed beneath the KGB or the GRU. And that, that uh, it may have been the recovery of that uh, statue and the reunification of it with its little iron uh, uh, mate or uh, counteractive uh, uh, god or whatever you want to uh, say that he is, uh, that uh, caused the final fall of communism, the withdrawal of the protection of their own little Iron Man. Uh, So now that we've given you uh, about seven different ways that you can go on incorporating this news story into your next game, I think we can pronounce that we've bent history to our will and concluded our remit in this segment. Like unto Ernst Schaefer himself. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Drive Through RPG. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website, where you can leave utterances and mutterings, at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.